0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. This is David, and uh, this is going to be a little different than the podcast that I've recorded in the past. Usually I have a microphone, and if I'm recording this, I'm doing this in some post-production after having talked to someone. But in this episode, I'm just going to talk into my phone and say a little bit about some of the things that I've learned. I titled this episode, A Final TSM Podcast. And that's because if you hadn't seen, I'm going to be taking a step back and shifting things up with my work around trauma-sensitive mindfulness. It's been an amazing ride. And I'm so appreciative of all the people that have been listening to this podcast and all the amazing guests that we've gotten to have on. It's been such a joy to get to connect with people, have deep conversations. Some of these are people that my teachers and I had always wanted to have these conversations about the relationship between trauma and meditation and other people that I learned from around eating disorders and psychedelic uh, medicine and research. So it's been quite a ride, and it would feel mm, strange to just not have some kind of completion with all of you, um, for those of you that have been listening, in all different parts all over the world. So that's what I'm going to get up to here. It's going to be a little bit... uh, I guess a little bit more casual, uh, and just talking to you one-to-one and seeing what happens. I don't have any notes here. And to start, I'll tell you where I am, which is I'm in Colombia. Yeah, I think many of you know I'm from Canada originally, and I'm currently in a place called Barichada, which is north of Bogota. This is all new for me. And I'm here with a colleague who I actually got to interview, wow, oh, it was one of the first podcast, I think, uh, Paula Ramirez, this great colleague of mine who's been doing amazing work with the UN and um, with a group called Breathe International here in Colombia, doing work around reconciliation, mindfulness, trauma, just doing really powerful and creative work. And she had extended this invitation for me to get to come and visit and get to experience Colombian culture and just see the work that she's been doing here. So it feels kind of fitting to get to be leaving this podcast from here because here's a person I just never would have met. Um, And that's been one of the most special aspects of, of this work is getting to meet so many of you who are just doing powerful creative work. It could be that you're doing TSM in your professional life or you were just interested in the topic personally. So anyway, it's been a really amazing stretch. And I guess I'll say a couple things about why the ending. And then I want to talk a little bit about some of the things I've learned and also the path forward. What I see is um, kind of next steps for the field and also my excitement about the ways that so many people that I've been connected with in community are taking this work in their own really unique directions and and fulfilling really important roles in the world. So why don't I want to start with uh, the reason I'm ending. I'll give you the, I could feel like I could give you the the hour-long version, but I'll give you the kind of main headlines. For the past year, I've been feeling um, increasingly like a shift was on the horizon. I felt this in a couple different ways. One was that I was getting to this point where I felt like I didn't have as much to say about the topic. So if any of you don't know my story, I was someone who meditated as a teenager and got really swept up in contemplative teaching and felt like this was really important work and mostly in the insight tradition and then started studying trauma in my 20s and and ended up having some hard experiences on retreat where i was really kind of white knuckle gripping my way through practice i think i was looking to practice to really solve a lot for me and and with kind of lofty expectations, and and ended up having some more challenging experiences on longer retreats, where I was I was heading out for like you know four to six weeks of silence, and and ended up kind of like blowing out my tire at some point on the retreat, getting really dissociated and stuck, and uh, came back and was talking to a lot of people and saying I don't know what happened, and a couple people pointed me to trauma. They said you might want to consider. Um, looking at your own history here and what was happening, and long story short is that really opened up uh, a whole world for me around exploring the intersection. My grandparents um, were passing away this is probably wow fifteen almost twenty years now and I was up in Canada was planning to do a psychology program up in Vancouver at UBC. And they basically said, you know, we're going to leave you some money. And if you'd like to use it to go down to the U.S., you can. And that opened the door to go to this school in San Francisco where I got to be around a lot of teachers and in a program where I was really able to study deeply this relationship between meditation and trauma. So it became um, my dissertation. And so the main goal of the TSM work was really to... I mean, if I'm honest... It was that I didn't. I wanted uh, someone. Could have been a younger person, but really could have been anyone to end up um, not having the same experience that I had in practice. That there would just be more of a scaffolding of resources in place around traumatic stress. And that, and many of you will know this, but you know, the main thing that I had a <laughs> I was gonna be in my bonnet. But you know, the thing I was fired up about was that I think there was, there was some teachers and traditions that were just doubling down in practice when trauma was present. And we're basically saying, you know, take it back to the cushion. Not everyone, of course. There was, of course, so much skill. And I don't pretend that I was first person to talk about trauma and meditation at all. But there were some traditions where there was just a doubling down and this kind of assumption that more would be better in terms of practice and that was what i really wanted to both challenge complexify and hopefully just you know give a whole scaffolding a framework of like here's what you could do if someone came and disclosed that they were experiencing flashbacks or there, there was some trauma in their in their field in their practice and so at some point you know, i wrote this book and i did this dissertation and which was a really powerful experience i had Actually, like a great audience come to the dissertation, which was super meaningful. And this was 2012, and some of you know the story, but it ended up online. Someone recorded it, and it was just super powerful. And what happened coming out of that, especially that video, is that I met a couple different people. This one people was uh, Willoughby Britton, who does work with uh, Cheetah House at uh, Brown, who has her own neuroscience lab there, and she contacted me and said, "Let's talk." So I ended up taking the dissertation and, and publishing a book. I shouldn't say that I published it. It was uh, it was quite a process. Um, but you know, I thought I figured, well, I have this dissertation, and uh, I'll just change, you know, shop this around and just change a couple words, and it should should go great. And that wasn't the case. But I found a great publisher at WW Norton who liked the topic and thought it was important. And it took it took about three years. Uh, I realized at some point. Uh, that I was going to have to rewrite the whole thing, and actually, one of the most helpful things about that process was that the dissertation was really identifying potential pitfalls. I was looking at meditation practice through the lens of a lot of contemporary trauma work, and I think that was it was helpful for exposing some potential um, pitfalls in from a couple different angles. The main one being that hyperfocusing on interoceptive or inner sensations could end up being dysregulating for traumatized people, and there was a whole neurophysiological reason why that was. anyway, so a lot of that dissertation was on the problems, and quite quickly, I realized that people were going to be wanting some solutions. Well, what's, you know, what could we do? And of course, there was, you know, many different perspectives and um, traditions that already had answers to that question. And the book ended up being uh, a chance to compile a lot of these different best practices, so to speak, into one place and have the conversation both inside of secular, non-secular traditions, bringing in some of what I thought was like the best work around trauma and really having a framework and there was no feeling in me that this was going to be the end all conversation around trauma uh, and meditation it was just a proposed framework and people this is going to be like an evolving living document and it was really powerful to to have it go out there and ended up at university of massachusetts having a at a conference there where there was a lot of mindfulness based stress reduction teachers who had been in this conversation around trauma for a long time. and Anyway, long story short is that it, all, it got out it in the field and I think it really uh, catalyzed a conversation that was already happening in many different ways. And it was powerful to be in a space where it was bringing together the best practices and best thinking on the topic. And again, there was already a lot of thinking around it, but this was a place to bring practices together in one place. So that happened for probably a year and a half or two coming out of the book was just meeting a lot of people who were saying, great, this was really helpful for us here. Um, Here's how we think about trauma. And it just kept bringing together for me best practices. I kept hearing more and more stories from people about what had worked for them or what hadn't. And at some point I felt like, wow, this is now, you know, so much information that I want to share Outwardly, with different communities, about what I'm hearing is working, and here's kind of a more cohesive framework. And that ended up being the the online training that some of you know and have taken, and is still you know available online if you want to check it out. But I feel really proud of that. That was kind of the culmination of this multi year process of both the book, but then being out in communities internationally to meet people and really kind of refine best thinking. And so that, that course is really powerful because it also happened during COVID. And so there was a certain urgency of how to meet communities that were under significant stress, often sometimes traumatic stress, how to do that well inside of meditation. So it was just, it was a moment. And then a year ago, coming back to why I want to tell you this story, a year ago, it felt like I didn't. Know if there was more in particular that I was hoping to say about the topic, of course, there was more to say there'll always be more to say about trauma and meditation first thing first thing I learned in this area when I was teaching was this was the most complicated realm I feel like, or one of the most complicated i'd ever been in. It was deep water, you know at any point, someone could ask a question about. A particular Buddhist teaching and how that related to trauma. We could go down these rabbit holes, and there were so many different angles to be talking about this work. So the it's an endless topic. But for me personally, getting back to my story, that original intention of wanting to have some of the struggle and the suffering that I had gone through. I don't want to be so dramatic about it, but you know, I was struggling for a couple of years there. And the inspiration was, I don't want this to go to waste. I want this to be used well inside of different contemplative communities where if you're asking anyone to pay close, sustained attention to their experience and you don't have a real background around working with trauma, that can be a liability. So it was wanting to really uplift and empower meditation teachers and anyone working with body-based work to to know how to work with trauma and be skillful, if they weren't already trauma professionals, and I started to realize at some point that the goal that I had um, felt complete, which was so humbling. It was a moment of like, wow, I, it's really out there. Um, you know, not everyone's going to uh, doesn't hold water for everyone, but in a lot of the communities that I've met, trauma sensitivity had been incorporated. There's this little cat right now, I don't know if you guys can hear it, who is hunting in the dry leaves, so that's what the rustling is. So it was It was a moment, and then I, I, I took, a, took some time with it, where I thought, well, let's see if that's true. Is that goal complete? And it started to be, honestly, just a feeling in my body. Of completion and that there wasn't anything more that I was meant to say or do around the topic and that wasn't coming I'm sure you can feel that it wasn't coming from an arrogant place like I've said everything I can it was really just a feeling of like wow this is my part's complete and then I'm seeing so many different incredible people I'm thinking of this person named Jesse Smith who's up in um, British Columbia who I met through this work who's doing work around uh, mindfulness and, in particular, um, traumatic brain injury and working with those who've had concussions and what would be the best practices and how would that apply. You know, just people doing amazing, nuanced work and taking the work in all their own particular directions. So that was happening. And then this summer, I was able to go to Europe for really... I mean, I'd been there in Eastern Europe, uh, but I'd never been able to travel in Western Europe. And so I was able to end up teaching i got some invitations from a group the first group was a group arbor um, in germany who've been doing awesome work and so i got the invitation and ended up getting to go to germany and ireland and uh, was in uh, was at oxford and uh, in sweden it was just a really amazing summer of getting to meet practitioners and that was the place where I realized that the work or my goal that I had was really complete, that there was people who had taken the work. It felt kind of embedded and baked into the field in a different way in that practitioners were um, utilizing it. They were bringing it into different organizations and that it was becoming harder to not encounter trauma sensitivity around meditation practice than it would be otherwise, which again, that was a moment where I thought, wow, it's amazing the field has changed in many ways and people have the option now of course they can take it or leave it when they're teaching meditation but it's really out there and I think that was a result of COVID honestly of the pandemic being um, such a, a spotlight on the impact of traumatic stress and then how to do well by people who are coming to meditation practice so that's how this all happened and that's why this is the final episode I mean, I guess more personally, I'll say that I also have been spending a big part of my life um, working with trauma. I started uh, in my early 20s when I was at UBC in Vancouver, where I was doing my clinical work. And I was working with um, male sex offenders. I was doing work with the Provincial Forensic Services Commission there and doing individual and group work. So it's um, it's been a big part of my life. And there's this feeling of, of, I don't know myself very well outside of trauma. It's just been the main focus. And there's this longing. I mean, I'm in midlife and I've been joking with my family. I'm kind of having my midlife crisis or opening of wanting to know, like, wow, who am I outside of trauma? And that doesn't mean I won't be still interested in studying different aspects of um, the wheel, that we talk about in the online training around trauma sensitivity, I think I'll be focusing more on resilience and looking at what has people bounce back, nourishment at a deep level. There's just other places that I want to be studying that of course are related to trauma, but I'm needing it to not be the, uh, the central focus of my life, at least for a little time. And the last thing I'll say about it before I talk about some of the lessons is that the image that I've had is of this house, and it feels like this house has been built, not just by me, I mean, I took a lot of time on it, but it's so many different people, I mean, imagine some of you listening, contributed to the building of this house around having a really cohesive framework around trauma and meditation and again with a deep bow that that didn't just come from me it came also from thousands of years of contemplative practice this is baked into buddhism again it's not pretending that it it wasn't there it was just a particular contemporary lens that i wanted to bring in i was inspired to and so this house feels like it's been created and of course it'll be a work in progress and this house is now up and available and i think it can weather storms and people can come and they can learn about this particular perspective and then for me personally it's time to not have the house be the place i'm living <laughs> it's like leaving for a little bit It's why it's powerful to be down here in Colombia and to really just take some space and perspective and be really proud about all we've built together um, so i'm i'm so proud i've been really humbled had some good cries uh, when i was in europe really feeling the ending and Feeling so humbled about it, uh, and and excited. Um, I'll say more about that about the field, but that's where I see this. Um, there's now a momentum in a field that's growing, and I'm excited to see where this heads. But I'll say more about that in a second. Let me say a little bit about some of the lessons that I've learned. So I want to talk about three different lessons um, that I have been my biggest takeaways, and I jotted these down at a cafe a little while back thinking what would would be the main things that I want to say besides the work that's still up there you know out there on the the book and the website in this contemporary moment what's what are the big lessons so here's three one would be around practicality of trauma-sensitive work second is about the ways that we can't meet everyone's needs and that being fundamentally okay and the third around this idea of of safetyism And the huge focus that's happened around safety and both the pros and the cons of that. So those are the three things that I want to talk through for a second. So let me talk first about this idea of practicality and why I think that's so important. And I think this is actually a really empowering element of trauma sensitivity more generally. For the first year that I was teaching, I feel like I had to stress to people that I wasn't intending to come in with trauma-sensitive mindfulness and be fear-mongering and saying, oh, you should be afraid. There might be people who are being re-traumatized in your work, and therefore you need to be um, you know, hypervigilant around it. I actually want it to be the opposite and say everyone who's offering contemplative teachings, that's something that we all need, I think so, in different ways, or so many people could benefit from. And that you will be even more powerful and effective in your role if you have some awareness of trauma so it was meant to be always an empowering framework and not one like you need to throw what you've been doing and you need to be afraid and i think that's why the work has resonated for people that it's it's you can think of it like an upgrade or something that is just filling out the work if you don't have an understanding of trauma i think that works for people it's empowering for Teachers and also empowering for the people that you're offering mindfulness practices to. So inside of that, practicality seems to rule the day. It's really the piece that I've seen over and over again when I've met teachers over the years who call themselves trauma-sensitive. It's that they have this ability to be creative and with people in the present moment, that they're listening. They're not just imposing a framework but they're actually listening to the needs of the particular person or the group that they're with and bringing in this framework around trauma sensitivity. I talked about this in the training where I think people can sometimes think of trauma-sensitive mindfulness as a checklist, which it is. You know, there's a hundred different things, of course, we can learn. But at the end of the day, it's also about the embodiment of how we're showing up. It could be us as teachers. It could be the embodiment of the organization. But is there a listening to the needs of people who might be dysregulated and struggling with trauma? And at the end of the day, it's not an A if A then B approach. It's really if A if someone's uh, dysregulated, they're having symptoms that are connected to trauma. If that's happening, then there's a whole range of tools that you could bring in, and then fundamentally inside of that it's a deep practicality and curiosity that you're bringing to a given situation or a person or group that you're working with so let me just if i could offer an example i was at a weekly meditation group that was hosted by a local teacher who actually was hosting at their home There was probably about 12 maybe 15 people there and there was a newer student who was coming to meditation for one of the first times. And at the end of the practice, uh, the teacher opened some space for comments and questions, just kind of an inquiry. And the newer student raised their hand and said, I, that, I hated, honestly, that practice. <laughs> and I wanted to just run from this space that we were. I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't want to be here. And it was a bit of a moment uh, in the group. People got very quiet and looked at the teacher And I was especially curious, like, wow, how are they going to handle this? And what I saw them do is they relaxed, they took a breath, and they said, that's awesome. Thanks for, well, one, thanks for telling us. And two, great noticing. You know, it's great that you could bring curiosity. Clearly, you were able to be present in your practice. So it was really affirmative of what had happened. And then where things got really interesting is the teacher said, so do you know how far away you wanted to go from the house? And the student, this newer student, you could see they were a little confused, but they knew and they said, yeah, there's this hill outside of where we're meditating. I would go to the top of that hill. I just wanted to get up there. And the teacher said, great. Um, Do you want to go there? Would it feel good? And the person said, actually, yeah, that would feel great. So we arranged it that uh, they had a buddy, they went with them, they left. And they came back about maybe 10 minutes later and I'll never forget when they came in, their their face was really kind of lit up and they looked really happy. And they sat down and teacher just opened space for them. And the student said, I wanna thank you for trusting that I knew what I needed and that I could follow that impulse. And I went and I just ran actually up and down the hill a couple times out of you know a lot of emotion. And just some bound up energy that's been in my body for a couple different reasons. And I actually feel ready to practice in a different way. And that was a moment for me where I, the whole room kind of lit up and settled. We went back into a little bit of practice. And I thought there was trauma sensitivity in action. And I wouldn't call it, I don't know if the person would even even say, oh, that was a trauma sensitive practice. We don't know what that person was dealing with or what that bound up energy was. But it was an orientation of curiosity and respect for this person's experience, that the impulse that was coming to the surface in that person's practice was something to be followed and trusted. Now, of course, there's a whole conversation to be had here that inside of trauma sensitivity, we're not doing trauma therapy with people and that could come across as an intervention that seems like okay we're going to be unearthing some material for trauma processing and work i don't mean it that way and i think that's actually a big part of training around trauma sensitivity is realizing where the boundaries of your own circle of competence are and and getting very nuanced about when would i encourage someone to lean into practice or when would i actually refer on so that's you know that's a big part of the training but that that orientation and that embodiment of the teacher in that particular moment that I always keep coming back to, where I thought, you know, they could have personalized that. They could have actually been like, oh, I didn't do, I guess I guess my, didn't lead it well or if there's something wrong with me. Instead, they had the wherewithal to take a breath, sit back in their chair and get curious about the person and say, what would work for you right now? It's not to say, as I'll talk about in the next point, that we start coddling people, we're taking them away from discomfort um, and, and trying to take care of everyone's needs and walk on eggshells. Sometimes people can mishear trauma sensitivity as kind of soft in that way and we need to be really overly careful. It's absolutely not what I'm talking about here. But there is this orientation of curiosity and respect similar to that teacher in the story that I just told where we're curious, we're listening, and then we're bringing the whole framework of trauma sensitivity and practices that we know into that moment. And what's amazing to me about it is we need to stay awake. This is where, you know, not surprisingly, meditation teachers need to have that practice at their backs. And to me, the teachers that and leaders that are most effective in contemplative traditions are ones that have their own practice and are coming to their teaching not out of any kind of rote theory or um, something that feels stale but they're staying awake in the moment and that's where trauma sensitivity comes alive is that we're listening in a moment-to-moment way to what a person or group needs and in essence and that's the whole first point here it's deeply practical you don't need to be highly theoretical about it or try to be figuring out okay well if this and this it's really to say great let me listen and what tool can i pull out now to offer someone To keep them in their practice. And that's actually one more thing I want to say about this first point. And I've noticed I needed to stress it when I was teaching this summer is that trauma sensitive mindfulness is intended to keep people inside of their meditation practice and the benefits that can come from it. It's not intended to be some kind of substitute trauma therapy that we're sneaking in the back door. So that's the first point I want to talk about this orientation of practicality and really a question that we can come back to over and over again is what works for someone and you know, and a lot of the students or participants that I'll meet um, in trainings will say I did this, is that okay? and often I'll come back with the question "Well, h- how did it go for the person and if it kept them in practice and it was enabling them to get the benefits of mindfulness then to me, I'm all for it stay in, be practical so that's the first point second point is related, which is that inside of that, we cannot meet everyone's needs, and that's okay. So I'll start with a story here about, and I've heard this story in many different ways, but I'll use one example where there was a meditation retreat happening. There was people that were having multiple chemical sensitivities inside of the space. There were just multiple needs happening at the same time. Someone was really sensitive to the fluorescent lights, uh, but there was another person who was also Feeling unsafe if the lights were turned out, someone was the scent was too much. They'd open the window, that would make it too cold, and it just it got away from the teacher who was trying their best to be offering trauma-sensitive mindfulness and really say, "Great, I want everyone's needs to be taken care of, so that you can you know access and gain the full benefits of practice." But at some point, that orientation of let me meet this person's needs and this person's needs is just too much. And the person I was speaking with said this ended up being a really important moment in their own teaching where they realized that they had gone so far into trauma sensitivity that they had ended up getting away from a core principle of inviting people to simply be with discomfort, which to me is one of the main tenets of contemplative practices that we're training in the ability to actually be with our experience, whatever it is, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And so for them, that was a key moment. And they went back to the group at some point and got very transparent and said, I'm going to do my best here to take care of everyone's needs. And as a reminder here, part of the work here is to actually be with discomfort in practice. Now, it's tricky, of course, where if someone was feeling, say, profoundly unsafe and triggered with the lights off in practice, we wouldn't want to just necessarily tell them in a calloused way, well, just take it back to the cushion. And let's talk about in the next point, there is moments to do that. And around trauma, there's ways to actually ascertain when that's the right move and when it's not. So that was the second brief point here is just this acknowledgement that you know, needs, of course, are real. And we can go too far um, with it. And I think trauma sensitivity can trend in that direction. We say, oh, gosh, is there? You know, has there been things we've been missing? I got to make sure that everyone's needs are met. But that's impossible to do, of course. And so there's a ground that we can have where we realize this is what's possible and this is what's not and we can be clear about our promises and if it doesn't work for someone that's okay we can we can have our limits as teachers and this is one of the things i think this is why i wanted to share this is that i did meet a couple teachers these last few years who really burnt out around trauma sensitive mindfulness and they went too far in the direction of trying to care for people, which you know it's coming from a great place, but in trying to set up the perfect trauma-sensitive container, they burnt themselves out in the process. They, they overstretched, they got it over their skis and they were doing multiple phone calls with people. And it, in essence, they had really traversed into the domain of trauma therapy where they were taking on a role that they weren't prepared, didn't have the capacity to hold. So I think that's something that's important for us as practitioners or teachers is to also be aware of our own limits. Inside of that, I think it can be very useful for us to be clear with ourselves and others what it is that we're promising in terms of the tradition that we're teaching. And I often remind people that are training in TSM, this isn't setting you up to be promising trauma healing to people. You may be giving them tools that are supporting self-regulation that will ultimately support trauma healing. But we want to be clear about what we're offering. And this is a, a distinction that I think is very useful for people, is differentiating between trauma-sensitive work and trauma-focused work. You know, There'll be some of you that have been training in trauma where you are promising explicitly that you can work with someone around their post-traumatic stress or PTSD and that you can promise um, some form of healing or regulation. Trauma sensitivity is more broad saying you know i have a general sensitivity around trauma i'm informed about what someone who's struggling with post-traumatic stress might be going through and i've done work to consider that in the context of mindfulness and meditation that's a huge win i think for people that are coming to practice especially on the other side of the global pandemic that you have the skills where in the background that's a lens that you're looking through when you're actually um, orienting to the people that you're working with. So that's the second point that I wanted to, um, to raise here. You can't meet everyone's needs, that's okay. And really settling into that over and over because the teachers that I see who are, I'd say happiest and most fulfilled, inside of their teaching and leading, they seem to have that orientation um, as an embodiment, that they, they know they can't meet everyone's needs, they don't overextend to try to do that, and they stay in their lane, they stay in their competence, and they often seem fulfilled about the, uh, about what they're offering. The final point I want to talk about has to do with safety. And this actually is in the, was in the title of my book, Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness. Pra- the subtitle was Practices for Safe and Transformative Healing. And I don't know if I realized at the time, I had a sense of it, but I've realized over the years how powerful, impactful, and I'd say uh, controversial the idea of safety is. Like, what do we really mean by safety? What are we actually promising um, in terms of safety when we're offering trauma-sensitive mindfulness? Because on some level, mindfulness practice is unsafe. You're asking people to pay close and sustained attention to something that may feel fundamentally threatening to them internally. And so if the whole idea here is that we're wrapping people in bubble wrap and trying to keep them from difficult experiences, then a mindfulness practice wouldn't be quote unquote safe. So what is safety? What can we actually say about it? And there's a whole module, of course, on this in our training. But the main point I wanted to raise here and that I've learned is that safety can go too far. Which will not be a surprise to any of you, but it's something that I got to see over and over again um, inside of this work, is that the focus on safety can actually end up being fundamentally disempowering to people and communities that we're working with. One example I learned about this the last year actually came from my cousin, who's been working as a paramedic, him and his partner, actually both paramedics back in, in Canada. And one of them was talking about a training, uh, in-service training that someone was doing, coming in, offering practices for self-regulation. Of course, there's a a high percentage of trauma exposure working as a paramedic that was especially exacerbated um, during the the pandemic. And there was a, a facilitator who came in, really with the baseline assumption that many of the people who were working as paramedics will have been traumatized. And Uh, This ended up being disempowering to my cousin, who was saying, you know, actually, to be working in this role during the pandemic was actually quite empowering for me. I felt like I had a sense of service, of responsibility, and also purpose. And so to have someone orient to me that this wasn't uh, actually a resilient role that I've been in, it felt off, it wasn't helpful, and it turned me off to the different tools that this person was offering me inside of the context of my work. And I think that can happen inside of meditation as well. People will come through a TSM training and all of a sudden they're looking for trauma in the rooms that they're in. And of course, trauma will be there. It's one of the whole points of this of TSM work was to say, just because no one's disclosing trauma in a group that you're working in doesn't mean that trauma won't be there. In all likelihood, it will be. And you don't need to be afraid of that, but you can be tracking for it and prepared to respond effectively effectively. But I've heard from a couple of people who said, "You know, I was really looking for trauma," and and then I was front loading the work that I had done in an attempt to meet people's needs, and that didn't work very well. And this is part of a larger issue, topic, a conversation I see being worked out in many different communities right now around safety. I see it happening in education um, as actually a flashpoint, especially on campuses. Where there's this question of how much exposure to difficult or traumatic experiences, how do we keep people safe, speakers being canceled in certain universities, and all the issues that come up around that, around free speech. So I think there's a lot happening around safety. And my assessment from the position I've been in these last couple of years is that there's been an overcorrection towards trying too hard to keep people safe. And this was raised actually in a book called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. And they it's fascinating. They used cognitive behavioral therapy as a lens to look at the current state of health of education in the U.S., particularly around universities. And really what I took away from the book was the cost of orienting to students as if they're fragile, and that they can't handle um, difficult ideas. Now, of course, there's complexity inside of that where um, you know, hate speech on campus could actually, of course, create unsafety and be disempowering for students and not create a quote-unquote safe space for learning. But I do feel like there's been an overcorrection in many different ways uh, in the world, but particularly around work and education, and in particular around trauma. And I saw this happen uh, over the, I guess, the four or five years that I've been teaching live now in, in different rooms, where at first there was skepticism, understandably, about bringing a trauma lens into a meditation environment because it had the feeling that it was trying to keep people away from trauma or difficulty. And I had to work really hard with people to say, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the goal of TSM is to prevent people contacting traumatic experience. That actually might be very helpful for them. The main point was don't double down if someone is being flooded and dysregulated inside their practice. It's really the essence of TSM. And how do we ride that line with people and make sure they're, in essence, having empowering experiences inside of practice? But if we're orienting to people as if they are fragile and um, we need to be walking on eggshells in practice, then people get that message from us. And uh, so I've been really this last year trying to stress the importance of remembering that the people who we're working with have come to you already having lived through the trauma and that they have all these different strategies in place that will enable them to. They have coping strategies that help them in their lives. And what they'll need from you in offering them, you know, very proud, powerful practice instead of meditation is tools that will enable them to stay inside their practice. So I think one of the best things that we can offer people inside of contemplative practice is a grounded confidence that turning and facing one's experience in the present moment is a good idea. And that it's actually going to be fundamentally empowering to someone to be exposed to their inner world as opposed to running away from it. And that's why mindfulness is so powerful when it comes to trauma. I mean, a lot of my work has focused on the ways that meditation practice in particular can end up being dysregulating and and challenging for people struggling with symptoms of trauma. But on the flip side, in terms of what's possible, when people cultivate mindfulness, they're more likely to be able to heal trauma. They can actually stay with their experience instead of avoiding and running away from it. And I experienced this personally when I was doing my own trauma work in my 20s, where I felt the way that I had you know, six years of meditation experience at my back, so that when I would contact painful, dysregulating, traumatic material, I was able to stay with it in a different way. I had had that time in, in practice, on the cushion of being exposed to difficulty and not running away from it, being able to tolerate sensations. So that ended up being really helpful for me. And it's something that I remind myself and all practitioners I work with is that if we focus too much on trying to keep people safe, we're actually disempowering them because we're not supporting them to be exposed to difficulty. It's the whole point of TSM practice in my mind. So one of the refrains I come back to is, We need to be caring, but we don't need to be overly careful. So those are the three takeaway lessons that I I wanted to share with all of you around practicality, the importance of that, um, not being able to meet everyone's needs, that being okay. And what that makes possible for us as practitioners when we have that fundamental orientation really takes care of us in a different way. Um, And also around safety, that I think there's been an overcorrection in some ways around safety. And that I see this being worked out um, in different ways. And that an over on safety can be unhelpful for, for students and participants. So having said that, I just want to spend a moment talking about what I see on the horizon, um, what I imagine coming. <laughs> the truth is, I'm not sure, but I have a lot of trust in it. Um, I see people taking work around trauma meditation and mindfulness and going in these incredibly creative directions um, and building on whether it's neuroscience whether it's buddhist tradition and the different um, interventions that can be used there's so much creative thinking in the space so this will only continue and i feel lit up about it i mean even though i want to be making a shift in my life in terms of my focus, I will still totally be keeping tabs on what's happening in empirical research, practically in the field, what books are coming out. I notice there's a lot of great stuff coming out about how to work skillfully with interoception, um, around uh, trauma-informed practice uh, with youth. so much great stuff coming out. so. I know this will um, continue. I think a lot of the guests that we've had on here will also keep heading in their own directions. For example, around psychedelic research, seems like there's lots happening around the possibility of um, MDMA or psilocybin working with PTSD. Just think it's, it's an exciting time in the field. It's also a daunting time. Um, I mean, maybe obviously, to state the obvious, but uh, being where we are uh, at this stage of the pandemic, I think, as I've said in different ways in courses, but maybe not here as much, that if the pandemic keeps trending in the direction where uh, it becomes more um, endemic and that there's some more stability and there's not as much um, trauma and anticipatory grief and loss, I think this will be a moment in the coming years for people to feel what has been unfelt. Uh, And especially around trauma, the traumatic loss that happened inside of families, um, communities that went through so much loss and grief, the moral injury that happened to a lot of healthcare workers who were placed in these impossible circumstances of needing to look after the health of a hospital, for example and also maintaining a boundary uh, uh, and needing to enforce policies and regulations that maybe kept families apart. Just, you know, I talked to a couple people who said, I was the person who told a family member they couldn't come and say goodbye to someone and what that meant for the healthcare provider to be placed in that role. So I think there's just been so much that has been backlogged. uh, And trauma, as I talk about, And my book is really a failure of integration as I see it. Um, It's something that was fundamentally too much for the psychobiology to process. And what's amazing about post-traumatic stress is the way that the mind and body um, keep it in the queue, so to speak. It's um, providing us with a mechanism that keeps drawing our attention back to something that is unhealed and unintegrated and that needs to be metabolized. So there's a profound amount of stress and trauma, it feels like in the system that needs to be worked out. And I think for those of you who are teaching any form of contemplative practice, uh, meditation, yoga, that people will start unearthing this traumatic stress in practice. And what I often find myself reminding practitioners of who come through with TSM training is that if someone comes to you with uh, some kind of um, traumatic difficulty, say a flashback in practice, that that's not fundamentally bad news. It's actually great news. You're offering them a very powerful practice um, through meditation or through interoceptive awareness that's leading to the de-repression of traumatic memory. And that's something that people will often need. What can happen is that people will feel like, oh no, bells go off, something bad's happening, I need to be you know, throwing a bunch of interventions at someone. And the fact that someone might come to you and share, a, a disclose something that happened around trauma, you could take as a compliment is actually good news. The practice is working, that they feel safe enough to come to you. All you need to be is prepared. I think, to be able to work with that effectively in your particular context. I work with people now all over the world. I've been working with a group in Japan who, um, you know, there's a particular context of um, earthquake and natural disasters, a recent political assassination. There's a very particular context to work within. So that's where I see it being all of the particular... Uh, the work of the community here for you all to empower yourselves know your context and then apply trauma sensitive mindfulness in ways that make sense for you that's really what I wanted to share for this last podcast I wasn't sure if I was going to record this but felt inspired just to share a couple things and mostly I just wanted to say thank you uh, for those of you that have been listening for the last wow I think it's been three years now starting with Will kabat I <laughs> think Will who's someone that um, I got to meet when I was at the school I was at doing that dissertation. And um, he was someone who just felt like the perfect first person to interview. And it set us off on this path of just being in conversation with people who are in the work, trying to do well by the traditions that they're teaching and by the moment that we're in. So it's been a ride. It's been amazing. And I was nervous for sure the first, I mean, the first year of podcasting, I found myself in this place of trying I guess like radio voice like trying to put on a podcast voice and at some point just trying to let that go and just actually have conversations and the best feedback that we got from all of you was when you were it sounds like you were appreciating just us having real conversations at the edge of our understanding I actually just got to do a podcast with Tammy Simon some of you might know her from Sounds True who's someone that I've looked up to for a long time and she had me on and i think her podcast was called conversations at the edge like literally being at the edge of of learning and one of the things i was just asking her offline a little bit about what it's been like for her to be um, in the role she's been in was sounds true and she said that her primary focus has been on just telling the truth that whenever she's revealing something about herself or asking questions that it's in the service of truth, which is why it was called Sounds True, which I didn't I never realized that. And there was something really inspiring about that, of just over and over again being in the practice of just trying to be honest and real. And I've tried my best to do that here with you all and not put on a show and not try to be too much of a teacher or, you know, up on some kind of weird pedestal or I just I've tried my best to just to be real with all of you about why I came to this topic, why it mattered to me, why I was inspired by it. And it's been edgy to to feel um, like it's time to make this shift. I feel like it runs counter to a lot of the conditioning that I've had in my life where, you know, we're at this, the community's doing great. Um, it's reasonably good business bringing money and to make this shift just runs counter to a lot of what I've told successes. And I wanted. It just felt important to be honest with you all about what feels right, what feels real. And I'm, yeah, I'm nervous about making the shift. I actually have no idea um, where I'm heading next. And uh, but I'm also trusting. Someone said it to me recently about this parable of um, needing to put one stone down before picking up the next one. And I don't know if that's the right parable, but I really felt the truth of that uh, in my bones of needing to just put this down with so much gratitude and thanks for everyone who has come along for the ride for this part of the chapter and with a deep trust that this is going to just keep on keep on going well past me has nothing to do with me in some level uh just it was you know so meaningful to be one link in the chain here and to see it keep growing and so thanks thanks for being here thanks for uh enjoying the podcast i hope you have really appreciate all your feedback if you want to stay in touch with me uh, easiest way is to go to my website and if you're not already subscribed to the newsletter then you can do that there and the plan i have is just to keep in touch in a really intermittent way or basically just say just say hi with any updates if i ever have something important to say i'm going to be you know, stepping back from social media and from any podcasts here for the time being uh, and, you know, we'll explore. And uh, But if you'd like to stay in touch, that's probably the easiest way is just to stay on the newsletter there. And if you haven't done the online training and you're interested, we're going to keep that up um, and an online available for enrollment because you know I'm aware there's going to be new mindfulness teachers that are coming into the mix and wanted access. I'm super proud of how that training turned out. We have a lot of guest faculty like Tara Brock, um, Rick Hansen, and uh, Rhonda McGee, others who really just put their time and energy into it. And I think it's it's like the best thinking That I could compile. And uh, it was a really transformative training to do. So, anyway, that's out there. And then this podcast will stay up and all the free resources will be up as well. So, okay. Wow. Well, I guess that's the end. (laughs) I know uh, one last story. The second meditation retreat I ever went on, uh, I was. It was hard. (laughs) For those of you that have been on retreats, I was struggling. And one of the things that I was struggling with the most was staying um, awake and mindful during food. Mostly I just wanted food to be just pleasurable and kind of check out during it. And I had this interview with the teacher. And the teacher said... One thing I want you to focus on in eating as you're being more mindful is notice what happens when the pleasure of the bite that you just had starts to extinguish. So I want you to notice what happens. So it was a place to focus in in mindful eating. And I noticed that every time I would take a bite and the sensations of pleasure and taste would start to diminish that I'd immediately reach for the next bite. (laughs) And it was really hard to be with endings. It's really difficult. And I, it was such a humbling moment to realize, oh, this is this is the work. This is learning how to actually stay present with the whole cycle. So I can feel the part of me even in this moment that wants to just reach for the next bite and be like, we'll see each other soon. And with all my heart, I just want to end really well and say, thank you. This has been such an honor. Uh, I'm so grateful. And, um, and we're going to complete here. So it's been a good series. It's been a good run look forward to the next iteration, and may you all be safe and well, and um, and meet this moment, you know, with your practice. You are all, I feel like we're all going to be needed for whatever's on the horizon, so be well. Talk to you again soon.